0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, open them up to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. And we'll be looking at four verses out of that third chapter from verse 15 down through verse 18. It is interesting that humans generally are leery of any deal that seems inherently too good to be true. When you get an email from a Nigerian prince who tells you that for a mere $5,000, he will reward you in months to come with $5 million, you immediately sense that there's something not quite right about that gentlemen. This is a deal that's just simply too good to be true. You realize that those people who might call you or you see advertisements for a pill that will help you lose 50 pounds without you changing your diet at all, you realize that that's nice, but that's probably a deal that's a little bit too good to be true. As much as we'd like to swim like Scrooge McDuck through a vat of golden coins, we realize that that's going to be pretty tough to do. Things don't come that easily. Not only will the money not come easily, but frankly, swimming through gold coins has got to be really tough. We're always waiting for the fine print. We're always waiting for the catch. We're waiting for these good deals to fall apart. We're either waiting for the deal to be totally fake for that pill to not work or do anything for us, or we're waiting for the other shoe to fall, for the fine print to kick in, for the interest rate to skyrocket. Paul has come to the Galatians and he has preached an immensely good deal. He has said, Christ has taken your sin. Everything that you owed to God has been paid by him. Believe in him and he will give you everlasting life. He will give you springs of water welling up in you into eternal life. He will give you everything that you could ever hope for and yet even more on top of that. How is Paul's good deal different from all the others? How do we know there's not fine print waiting there? Is the law the fine print that comes after the promise? There is promise, but then there is law, just like there's a good deal, but then there's the fine print, there's the catch. Now Paul is arguing throughout the book of Galatians is that after the good deal, after the promise, after what has been good news has been proclaimed to you, there is actually no fine print attached to it. There is no catch on this deal. The law with all of its commands and necessary deeds is not somehow an amendum on to the end of a promise. It is not fine print that God puts at the very, very back so you won't catch it. Paul will switch to talking about the nature of the law. He's not content, as he shouldn't be, to tell us, you don't need the law. You don't need to trust in the law and do the deeds of the law and then not talk to us about what the purpose and the remedy of the law was. He will turn to the nature and the purpose of the law. But before he does that, he will talk to us today about the nature of the promise. Why is it that this Could never have fine print associated with it. Why is it that this good deal could never have a catch? First, let us read of Paul's words and then work through them together. Paul begins to write in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into his offsprings referring to many but to referring to one into your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is the word of our God. Paul argues, we will say for three things in here. First, he argues that the promise cannot be changed. The promise cannot be changed. To do this, he starts with what he calls, what is translated as a human example. That even with a man-made covenant, that even when two sinful human beings come together to make a covenant, to make a, a contract might be a more modern way of putting that. When we come together to make a contract, once both sides have agreed to it, they've ratified it, they've signed on the dotted line, one of them doesn't get to come back and then sort of change it to make it more to their liking. You go down to a car dealership and you agree to buy a car for $23,000 and they will bring out reams of paper and you will have to sign all those reams of paper to make sure that that car is yours. You get done with it. You sign all of them, $23,000. It says it right there. You're good to go. You reach over to shake the hand of the car salesman. He shakes your hand. It's even more sealed now outside of the signatures. You've given your hand to him and he reaches over, grabs a pen and changes that three into an eight. Right? And you say immediately... That, what? That's ridiculous. You can't do that. We signed it. It's $23,000. You can't just change the contract like that. Not only would that not stand up in the court of law, but it doesn't even stand up to the court of common sense. Paul notes that this sort of practice, that once things are settled, you can't change them is well known in the ancient world. It's not just a modern invention. This is well known to people in the ancient world. It is the basis of contract laws anywhere and everywhere. It's not an American thing. It's not a Western thing. It's a human thing. When you agree to something, when you agree to the terms of something, you can't just come back later and change it. And if, then, sinful men act like this, his, his point here is, how much more must God act like this? Notice how he puts it in verse 15, even with a man-made covenant. If it's even with a man-made covenant, then it's all the more assured with God that once he has made a promise and has not connected a law to it, if he has made that promise, it cannot be ratified to include the law. So because God has made an actual promise to Abraham, a one-sided contract, which is sealed and finalized, He cannot come back afterwards and alter it to add the law to it. What does this covenant then look like? How how can we be certain that this is actually what Paul claims it to be, a one-sided covenant? Well, if we were to turn back to Genesis 15, there's a lot that points in this direction. Here, Abraham has already had the promises made to him. The promises have come in Genesis 12. God has said, get up, go out of the land that your fathers dwelled in, out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, and you will go to the land of Canaan, to the land that I will give to you. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and I will make your name a blessing to all of the peoples of the world. God has made that promise to him. Abraham has acted on faith to go to the land of Canaan, to leave his own people. And in doing that, he has also been driven down to Egypt. He's been blessed so mightily by God that he and his cousin or his nephew, Lot, have to separate their possessions. He has seen God rain down destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we open up chapter 15, something about all of that has sort of disquieted him. He is not terribly settled And so the word of God comes to him, and he reminds him to calm him down. Your reward will be great. Not your reward for doing anything. He just flat out says, Abram, your reward will be great. Abram then turns to God, and for the first time, he utters a complaint. There's a fly in the ointment, you see. He says, well, it's great. I'm glad that my reward will be great, but you need to understand, it's not going to be my reward. I don't have an heir to pass it along to. Eleazar of Damascus is the closest person to me, and he is not my child. And he has a real problem with this because Abraham doesn't believe that the the promises are really his. If they don't go to one of his children, then in what sense is it even his? So God reaffirms the promise. He takes him outside to the Middle Eastern desert where there's no electricity, no lights. He has him look up at the Milky Way, and he says, listen, man, count the stars. I'm going to make your people as numerous as that. And Eleazar of Damascus is not going to inherit. I will give you an heir from your own flesh and blood. This is where Abraham famously believes God, and that belief is counted to him as righteousness. And Paul had stopped there before. But what happens next is incredibly helpful for our faith and instructive for it as well. Because immediately after, Abraham believes him and it's counted to him as righteousness. He looks to God and he says, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I supposed to know that this land is mine? Not only will I possess it through my offspring, but how am I supposed to even know that the land will be mine? I've already had to leave it. The Canaanites are here. How am I supposed to handle all this? What is sort of assurance can you give to me? And Abraham has already said that he believes. And sometimes... Frankly, we think that his belief is so rock solid that he just walks, regardless of what the world throws at him, seeing through all of it, trusting in God's promises. And we think that that's how our faith would be as well. But frankly, we have doubts. As Abraham, the man of faith, also needed assurance in his own life. God is not slow to give that assurance. God does give him that assurance. And so God does this in verse 9. "'God said to him, "'Bring me a heifer, three years old, "'a female goat, three years old, and a ram, three years old, "'a turtle dove and a young pigeon. "'And he brought him all these, cut them in half, "'and laid each half over against each other. "'But he did not cut the birds. "'When the sun had gone down and it was dark, "'behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch "'passed between these pieces.' On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, "To your offspring I give this land, from the river Egypt, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Chaldamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This land is yours." Abram wanted to know for sure, and so God gave him a promise. God made a treaty for him in a language that he would understand. It sounds incredibly weird to us, but this is a fairly normal Old Testament practice. It's a fairly normal Middle Eastern practice. It's not like it's a scriptural practice. It was just done in the middle. uh, um, It was done in that territory at the time. You would cut these animals and you would separate them, and what that would end up doing is making a little alley in the middle of those two. And what would typically happen is that the two people who had made a treaty with one another, after they had settled on the terms of the treaty, would walk together between those two animals, symbolizing a couple of different things. One, that just as those animals had once been one, they were now one as they walked through there. That this contract bound them to one another. And secondly, they were also confessing that may this happen to me, and more also, if I go back on my word to you. It was symbolic It was a statement that I will not go back on this. And if I do, may I be punished just as these animals were ripped into. May so it be done to me. This might seem like a weird way to ratify a covenant, weird way to ratify a treaty, but nevertheless, it was the way that people in those days were to do it. It's no less arbitrary, frankly, than putting your name, signing a name on a document no less arbitrary than young men spitting on their hands and shaking with one another. No less arbitrary than kids saying, cross my heart and hope to die. You're making a solemn oath. There's a couple of things to notice about this solemn oath, though, that God deviates from, specifically one thing that God deviates from here that is normal in these treaties. That is that Abraham watches. Abraham does not participate in the treaty. God's promises are unilateral. They are only his promises. He promised it to Abram. There's nothing for Abram to do. Abram doesn't have a side to hold up here. He doesn't have anything that he can break. He doesn't need to say, if I don't uphold the covenant, then may this be done to me. Because there's nothing for him to uphold. There's nothing for him to do. It is a promise. It's unilateral. It's only for God. So only God, as a Symbolized by a pot and a flaming torch, which unfortunately this morning we don't have time to talk about, but only God symbolized by those things passes through there. And Abram knows when he watches this, he knows God has ratified this with me. It is sure. The whole point of the exercise was so that Abram might know for sure, for absolute certainty that God will be true to his word. And so God has done these things for him. The promise rests solely on God and he cannot break his promise. And you'll notice how great this promise is. God has sworn on himself here, on his very being, as those animals now do not have life in them. Their lifeblood is running all over the ground. God himself places himself in between these to say, if I'm not good to my word, may I too be ripped apart. The one who has life in himself, it is a sign that this is irrevocable. There is no way logically, there is no way ontologically, there is no way physically that this could ever be turned back. It is as sure as creation itself. The book of Hebrews in chapter 6 says this, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Abraham knows for sure because God is always faithful to his word. 2 Timothy 2:11 2, through 13 The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him we will also live with him if we endure we will also reign with him if we deny him he will also deny us if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself God will always be good to his word because he has to be because that's what he is he is always faithful The promise then cannot be changed. But secondly, the promise was meant for Christ. The promise was meant for Christ. Here we meet perhaps one of the oddest passages in the book of Galatians, which is not short of odd passages. It's not short of difficult passages, but this is perhaps the most difficult. Paul seems to be making a remark about the kind of language that's used in Genesis. He says something about the fact that it's singular, it's offspring, it's not plural, offsprings. Okay. Now, this is what is known as a collective noun, and that is, it's a noun that is singular, but it describes a whole bunch of things, okay? So, you are a singular congregation, Okay? But that doesn't mean that you are one person. It means that we are talking about all of you in terms of one thing, the same way we would talk about a class, right? The class of 1998 or the class of significantly earlier. The class of 98 means a whole bunch of people, right? As individuals, but they were working, they were moving as one. So that is what a collective noun does. It collects a whole bunch of individual things under one. That's what the word offspring is. Okay? So when you hear the word offspring, even if it's in the singular, linguistically, these are really common. We use these all the time. Navy, army, classroom, faculty, staff, all kinds of things that we can use to talk about a group of people as one, a team, right? The word offspring is a little bit odd because it works for both the individual and the collective noun. It doesn't really work for congregation, right? You might be called a congregant, inside of a congregation, but those aren't the same word. But you can speak of Israel and all of the children of Israel being the offspring of Abraham. All of them, Isaac, Jacob, on down the line, being the offspring of Abraham. But you could also speak of Isaac in the singular being the offspring of Abraham. All that to say, it's a normal word, and it's normal to use like this. And frankly, the oddity would be in the use of the word offspring's. Plural. Paul seems to be making some sort of linguistic argument that frankly doesn't hold. This is just not how language works. And what's weird about this is Paul must be either confused, maybe he's trying to mislead the Galatians, maybe he's just ignorant, but then later on he uses the word offspring in the singular precisely how he says it's not used in Genesis. Look at chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. That's not a singular you. It is for us. So if we were in the south, we'd say, y'all are Abraham's offspring. Singular. Or if we're in the north as we are, we'd say you guys, Right? You guys are Abraham's offspring. Singular. Notice he doesn't make it plural here. Is he breaking his own rule? Does he not know what's going on? Yes, he knows what's going on. The problem is that when we read it, it seems like the, the argument here is primarily linguistic. It's primarily about the word offspring, but it's not a linguistic argument. It is, more appropriately said, it's an argument from literature. Literature. It's a literary argument. It's a narrative argument. It is how the Old Testament uses the word that matters, not what the word means in some sort of lexicon or dictionary. So let's go back and look at how Genesis in particular, but all of Scripture, uses this idea of offspring. The first time the word is actually mentioned is in Genesis 3, a very important position where there has been the fall. And God has shown up and he has declared It's not the first time the word is used, but it's the first time it's used this way. God has declared to the serpent his penalty for leading Adam and Eve astray in sin. And so in verse 14, we read that the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head and you shall, excuse me, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The picture here is of the snake being promised defeat at the hands of the offspring, singular, of the woman. Now, if we read it the way we are to read, we think, the word offspring as a collective noun, that would be all of her offspring together. It means sort of like all of the people that are born from her are going to come collectively, and he might continue to nip at their heels, but they will eventually collectively come together and crush his head. So if we pretended like we had never read the Old Testament before, and we're going to start reading it this way, this particular promise is something that we then wait to see where it comes. Right? We're waiting to see how this promise is going to fall. And we expect that Eve, who is called the mother of all living, right? Her offspring are all the living people of the world. As we even read through Genesis of not only her giving birth to another son after Abel is killed in Seth, but we also read of this genealogy which is filled with death, but it's also filled with life. People are being born, the world is being populated. We expect then soon for those people to gather together and to do something about this evil in their midst, but we find exactly the opposite. They don't battle Satan, who led in his deception to all the wrath of God being poured out, but they now are participating in it. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And so what did God do to her offspring he destroyed it, with the exception of one offspring, Noah. Then even after Noah, we have the repopulation of the earth. And again, the Lord God has to scatter them. They were collecting themselves together, getting in trouble at Babylon, trying to supplant God himself, and he scatters them. And we find out that he will indeed bless all of the nations. He will bless the majority of the people of the world, apparently, through one Man, not using all of Eve's children, not all of her offspring, but one of her offspring. You say, okay, well, that's fine. That was used before, but what about Abraham's kids? Remember, the whole nation is included in that. The whole nation is included in that two generations down the line. But let's not forget, Abraham had Ishmael, and Ishmael was fully Abraham's offspring. The promise says nothing about an offspring born to Abraham by Sarah. It says nothing about that. It's just your offspring. Ishmael was as much his offspring as Isaac would ever be. But it wasn't through Ishmael. It was only through Isaac. And then even in Isaac, it was Jacob and not Esau. The Lord says in Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Even as we go through the beginning of of Abraham's family, we see that God is continually not picking all of his sons. Abraham didn't just have two kids, even sons. He didn't just have two sons. He went on to have more sons. He had eight total sons, and only one of them received the inheritance. Yes, then all of the people are indeed chosen. But even in that choosing of all of the people, we see that God continually focuses on one. When they are sent down to Egypt, God looks at all of his people not as though they are a collective people, but as though they are one, a singularity. Listen to how he speaks through Moses to Pharaoh. You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. These are not words, however, that are ever used as collective nouns. This is not like offspring. He is talking about all of his people as a singular entity. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son, which is clearly meaning an individual. God treats his people like they are represented by an individual We see this even further down the line in 2 Samuel 7.14 when David the king receives all of the blessings of God through his son shall the kingdom continue. David asks, can I build a house for you, Lord? And the Lord ends up saying, no, but I will build a dynasty through you. I will make your name great. And in 2 Samuel 7.14, David is told this. He, that is one of your descendants, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. As all of Israel is pictured as one son of God, so now the king is pictured as the embodiment of all of those people. God will treat the king like he treats all of the people. The king becomes the embodiment of all of the people. This is why when you track through. First and second Kings, first and second chronicles, you see the rise and fall of the kingdom with the rise and fall of kings, not the rise and fall of the populace. Isaiah intensifies this. The suffering servant who comes, bears the grief and the burden for all of his people. God treats his people through this one individual. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We turned our eyes, every one of them, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is God looking at his people through the eyes of one man, That man is almost always associated with a king. And why? Why? Because the king gets all of the land. It is his land. Listen to how... Daniel puts this in Daniel seven thirteen through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, a human being. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting, which shall never pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. He is given what is essentially the promise of land. The same thing that Abraham wanted to know. Can I have the land? God said, I will give it to your offspring. This one is given a kingdom that includes not only people, but it includes land. This is what Samuel was warning the people about when they were to get a king. He was warning them that when you get a king, you realize that the land is no longer yours. It is his. Your children are no longer yours. They are his. Samuel says to the people, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and his equipments of chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will make your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. He doesn't say this simply to say Saul will be a bad king. He says this is the way of all kings. The king's Get the land. The kings are the embodiment of the people. The promise that was for all of the people, once there is appointed a king, goes directly to the king. Jesus doesn't shy away from this, but he embodies it. Look at the book of Matthew. In the beginning of the book of Matthew, Matthew is doing everything he can to portray Jesus as Israel all over again. He is the embodiment of everything that Israel was. Out of Egypt I have called my son, Matthew says. That's why God sent Jesus down to Israel simply to call him back up so that he would walk the same path that Israel walked. As all the nation comes out to be baptized, even as all the nation went through the Red Sea, so Jesus Christ himself is baptized in the remission of sins, although he has no sin. John even looks at him and says, I should be baptized by you. And he says, no, 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 this is to fulfill all righteousness. To make what I'm going to do right and proper, I need to be identified with the people. As Israel is tempted in the desert for 40 years, so Jesus goes out to the desert to be tempted for 40 days. He is the embodiment of all that Israel is. Paul is not mistaken. He just knows how to read his Old Testament. This is the common confession. Jesus Christ is the offspring of Abraham. He is the one that all of the promises have come to. The promises came, in a sense, to Isaac and to Jacob. The promise came then to all of Jacob's descendants. But it was the promise of the promise. They never reaped the actual thing. As you go to Hebrews 11, you look at all these faithful men and all the faithful things they did, and women, as it lists all of them. It lists Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. It lists all of the prophets and all of the things that they went through at the very end of that, toward the end of the hall of faith in 1139. The book of Hebrews says this, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Jesus alone receives what is promised. The promise was meant for him. The promise is fulfilled in him and only in him. When Paul says, it doesn't say offsprings. What he means is, it doesn't say the very thing. It doesn't say the very thing that you would need to have written there so that you would know above all else that he meant a whole bunch of people. But it says something vague. If we can read in two ways, you can read it as meaning everybody and you can read it as meaning one. And Paul says the appropriate way to read it throughout the Old Testament is to read it as focusing on one. That is then why, when we go to 329, it sounds like it does. Why are we Abraham's offspring? We are Abraham's offspring because we are Christ's. If he is our king, the land belongs to him, the blessings belong to him, the power belongs to him, the dominion belongs to him, and he graciously then allows us to be co-heirs with him. He is not ashamed to call us Brothers, the promise was for Christ. And finally, the promise is given, not earned. The promise is given, not earned. He goes on to say, that is what I mean. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God to make that promise void. But if the inheritance comes by the law, it's no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The promise is indeed not void. If God had changed the deal, if he had manipulated it, if he had had commandments or stipulations in it, then of course it would be earned. You would have to do something to keep yourself in the covenant, but it's not void. The reason why covenant here and promise can be switched back and forth is because the covenant was all one-sided. That's basically what a promise is. If you make a promise to somebody, it is a one-sided covenant. You are agreeing that you will do this regardless of what happens. That is what God has done. God didn't give it as a law. He didn't require anything out of Abraham. He simply promised it and then ratified it by his own very being. So it cannot be earned. It is nothing more than a gift. And it is the truest of gifts that could be given. Abraham didn't ask for it. We, we don't read of him in Genesis 12 calling up to God, asking him for a blessing. We don't read of him looking around and seeing the carnage that sin has has laid waste on humanity, asking for God to free him from it. We don't see him asking for God of land, of possessions. What we have is God showing up and unilaterally promising it to it. It is a gift that God gives to Abraham. Abraham didn't deserve it. And frankly, we know that both of those two things are true of us. We neither asked for it nor deserved it. Paul says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only did we not deserve it because we were sinners, but we didn't ask for it because we were sinners. There was enmity between us and God. We didn't need his salvation. We didn't want his salvation. But even when that was true, God gave it to us anyways because he is generous and glorious and it is a gift. And furthermore, friends, Abraham will never pay it back. Listen, how is he supposed to? Is he going to pay it back with grapes? How do you suspect those grapes grow? They grow because of the land. Is he going to pay it back in sheep? How do the sheep grow? They grow by grazing on the land. The gift of the land sustains. Everything that Abraham could give back is in fact part of the gift that God has given to him. There is no paying back. There is no paying back what God has done for him. How silly of us to think that we can likewise pay God back for what he has done for us, as though we are now in his debt and our obedience is working out our debt to him. That's not what happens, friends. You can't pay him back. It's like someone buying you a $500,000 house and you saying, Thanks. Can I make you out a check for $400? Would that cover it? Like, how good is that? Not only does it not speak, of your humility before God. It speaks of a vain pride to think that you can pay God back for what he has done. It also makes you incredibly and annoyingly cheap to think that anything that you do can pay him back for the gift of his son. Not only is it an affront to the idea of a gift, but it necessarily cheapens that gift. But all of our response to it, all of our obedience... All of the things that come to us are extensions of that gift. None of it is a payback to God. Nothing that we do is a payment back to God. Rather, it is all meant for our joy, our blessing, and our good. Even our obedience before him is not meant to say, well, I'm so obedient to God. It is meant literally for your joy. The obedience that the salvation of Jesus Christ provides in you, that it works in you, is meant for your own joy. It is part and parcel of the gift. Jesus says this in John 15, 9 through 11. We read this last week. It's just it works. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Keeping the commandments of God is a blessing that comes from abiding in Christ, and that itself is a measure of the fullness of joy that Christ wants you to reap in your life. It is a blessing, it is a gift, and cannot be paid back. Psalm 16, which many of us read this week as we read through Scripture, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures on top of pleasures on top of pleasures. This is the gift of our God. God did not fail in his promises. He did not run away from the responsibility that he has taken upon himself. He answered all of them and more beyond our wildest expectations in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gods of this world are demanding gods. They require from you. They take from you. They demand from you. But your God, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives freely to all who come to him without price. It is a gift that is given to you, purchased by God alone, that no law can blemish and no obedience can repay. It is a gift that has pleasures forever more. Such a God who is faithful to such great promises deserves to be praised in song for the great gift of his Son. That is the gift of Jesus Christ. A gift that says that he has taken your debts, he has taken everything that you have owed to God, he has taken every evil that deserves to be repaid to you, and he has taken it upon himself so that you might get the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Trust in his work. Trust in his word, for it is the only thing that we have to stand on and stand and sing and praise God, for he is good. Let us pray. Father God, we are thankful for your word, that you are good to your word, that you are kind to us in giving us your word, that you have given us even your son. What a gift, but it is not a gift, Father, that we can repay. It is a gift simply that we, in faith, Trust. Jesus is not a king like Saul. He is not a wicked king who keeps things for himself. But in his own humility, he gives back to us a rich inheritance that we might be co-heirs with him. What a gracious God. I pray, Father, that we would hold tightly to him. That we would know him and his salvation and above all else. That it might fuel a passion in our lives for others to get to know them, to get to know him through evangelizing, and through discipleship, that we might be a people who long to see people grow, to know the same thing that we know, that our God is awesome and mighty and deserving of all praise. Give strength to our voice now as we stand to sing that you might be glorified above all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.